The Water Values Podcast, Session 105. Welcome to the Water Values Podcast. This is the podcast dedicated to water utility, resource, treatment, reuse, and all things water. Now here's your host, Dave McGinnis. Hello and welcome to another session of the Water Values Podcast. As my daughter Sarah said, I'm Dave McGinsey. Thanks so much for joining me on this Tuesday, July 4th, 2017. Uh, the, that's the release date of this episode. Um, obviously, if you're outside the United States, have a great 4th of July. If you're inside the United States, happy Independence Day and hope you're celebrating well. Uh, we've got a great show for you today. We have Bill Brennan, who's an investor in the water space, and he's going to take us on uh, a great journey around the water sector investing space. Keep in mind that you know all the t- you know the typical um, disclaimers apply. We're not providing investing investment advice on any specific stock or any specific type of investment. So take it for what it is. It's just a general discussion about uh, water investing and and all that. So. Uh, Don't rely on this. Always consult with your financial advisor before making investments. We also have Reese Tisdale, who's got a, uh, for the Bluefield on Tap segment here, uh, who has a fantastic uh, uh, deep dive into kind of decentralized water and some of the investing that's going on in that space. So uh, without further ado, let's get into the uh, Bluefield on Tap segment with Reese Tisdale. Well, hey, Reese, welcome back to another session of Bluefield on Tap. Great to have you with us again. How's things going? Things are great. Summertime. <laughs> happy, happy. Awesome. Well, uh, let's talk about uh, decentralized water in today's um, uh, feature uh, presentation on the Water Values Podcast. We talked to Bill Brennan, uh, and one of the things we talked about is decentralized water. And I'd like to get your take on where where you and Bluefield see the decentralized water uh, market. Yeah, it's something that's come up recently, and I think it's it's – what we've seen happen actually in the power sector with solar PV, we've seen, you know, solar service providers starting to provide, you know, these decentralized power systems um, and their financial players that are interested in the space. We've got the technology players that are interested in the space. We have now, in the case of water, we have industrial firms such as uh, breweries, craft breweries and such that actually have rising wastewater costs. The utilities are putting a little bit of uh, financial pressure on them. They're raising the rates because, the, quite honestly, the, the, the wastewater is high strength, and uh, they're, it's overwhelming their capacity, particularly in smaller areas. One case in particular I know of in Northern California uh, where there are opportunities for decentralized water systems. Yeah, so, so can you expand on that a little bit? You, you specifically mentioned uh, craft breweries. Uh, uh, how, are they, how are they dealing with this? What are the you – know, you know, what are the components they're using to to help help them deal with these high-strength waste issues? Yeah, so, I mean, I think traditionally, you know, obviously what I think a lot of uh, industrial firms do is they get their, their water supply from various sources. It could be municipal. It could be groundwater, well water, and such. But the problem is uh, the breweries themselves, they do have this uh, – the high-strength wastewater. And it, in a, play, a good example is in, in Napa Valley. California, Northern California, where the breweries are, uh, they typically send it to the municipal municipal facility. But in the case of Napa, what's ended up happening is local uh, treatment plants have said, hey, you know, we're going to have to start charging more. So now there's companies, breweries are sending their 
wastewater by truck to Oakland, to EB Mud. And so what they're doing is they're trucking it 50 miles down the, uh, down the road to be disposed of. Now, I want to say one thing I might add is that EB Mud has taken this opportunity because of drought and what's happened in California more recently, they've actually uh, been exposed to more capacity or have more capacity available. So they're marketing themselves in some respects to companies such as breweries, brewers to take on their wastewater. Uh, it's been a really interesting dynamic that we've seen happen over the past couple of years. But I think the brewers, in a nutshell, to make a long story short, instead of trucking it, they've realized there's technology and solutions, these decentralized systems that can now be placed on site. So not only can they take the wastewater, they can treat it, recycle it, reuse it for their, uh, for their own needs. But at the same time, there are other options to capture energy from this wastewater. And so we've seen companies like uh, Cambrian Innovation has signed these basically water and energy or wa uh, water power contracts with the brewer brewers. Now, are these contracts, are these uh, water uh, energy contracts, are they um, do, are, are they are they using the waste to, for like combined heat and power, or you know how's the how what's the energy component? How's that fit in? They're basically generating heat and electricity on site from the uh, from the waste. And then, you know, in the water that comes off of it and the treatment, they're using that for uh, on-site usage. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So, and that, and that is a big thing, even in the uh, municipal wastewater industry, is that uh, you get your anaerobic digester and start start. Uh, and I don't know if EB Mud is doing this, but um, you know, when it was taking all that high-strength waste and converting it to, uh, or at least treating it. Um, uh, so in terms of these these power agreements, you know, what what more can you tell us about how what's the incentive for the for the brewer to, to enter into this? Do they get the share in the electric or how's that all, all shaken out? They can use it on site. And look, these are relatively new in this case when it comes to these industrial uh, facilities. But I think what ends up happening is they're reducing their operating costs, the energy costs, they're reducing their wastewater treatment costs that they're having to, they, you know, having to pay the municipal facilities. And then they actually don't need to procure or draw down as much water. And in a place like Northern California, it makes a lot of sense. Um, increasingly makes a lot of sense. On the other side, I think what's ended up happening, it, it basically, you know, flat lines or sets in, uh, you know, they're able to predict what their costs are going to be over time based on, uh, on operations. The other part of it, which is a key player, which I, I suspect you'll get into with with Bill Brennan, and that is there are a number of financial players that are actually interested in this and financing these these solutions. So if they can string together enough deals, then that's going to be an opportunity on the financial side. We're in the infancy now of all this. What? How does? How does? How do you and Bluefield kind of see this market taking off? I mean, is it? Is this a real, real thing? Are, are these? Are these investment companies going to be able to string together these deals or? I think so. I think, uh, and I, I can't recall if we've talked about this in the past, but there's certain markets in the country. I mean, this is one example of food and bev or craft breweries, and which has scaled. It's grown to their 4,200 or so breweries in the U.S. That's w one slice of the market. We're, I think we're likely to see things like this happen in other markets, um, 
Also, commercial facilities. San Francisco now has a law in place that requires any facility over 250,000 square feet to install a, a water reuse system on site for cooling, could be used for toilets, could be used for irrigation on site. But the point is, water rates are getting high enough, industrial and commercial water rates are getting high enough for um, these companies that it's becoming an option. Now, what does that mean for the future of water? It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out for municipal utilities because over time, are people going to be pulling off of the off the water network and reusing, becoming more efficient? Increased efficiency for for water utilities is not always the best thing. Um, <laughs> you know, they've got capacity, they've got it in the ground, they've got it to deal with this. So if people become more efficient, revenues go down, and then they've got overcapacity in some cases. Yeah, well, I've I've got a consultant. I think I've said this on podcast before. the The thing about conservation rates is you got to be careful because they might work. Um, exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, Reese, thanks again for coming on today. I thought you did a great job. I, it was always interesting to learn about these uh, new things that are trends that are coming up and and you know segments of the market. So uh, thank you very much for your time and sharing some of your knowledge. No, it's my pleasure. Always happy to be here, and uh, hope everybody. Uh, has a great weekend. All right. See you, Reese. Bye. All right. Take it easy. I always appreciate Reese Tisdale coming on and giving his advice. He, he always has a, a great way of putting it, and uh, he's always got something interesting to say. So, Reese, thanks very much for that Bluefield on Tap segment brought to you from uh, Bluefield Research. Really appreciate it. Um, before we get to the feature interview with Bill Brennan, uh, just a couple uh, housekeeping items, things I normally go over at the top of the show. If you are uh, interested in if you're well, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while and or have enjoyed what you've heard, please consider leaving a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, whatever uh, podcast directory you're listening on. Would really appreciate that. And also uh, consider giving a donation to the Water Values, which will help kind of keep the lights on, help pay the hosting fees, uh, both media and uh, web. And, you know, pay for the other, you know, web registration, all that, all that kind of stuff. So your donation can can really help uh, spread water knowledge. Uh, and we'll take it in any denomination uh, that you're willing to give it in. So there's a little PayPal button on the website. You, you just kind of scroll down a little bit when you get on there. And you'll see the little uh, yellow button on the right side of the screen. So would very much appreciate any donation you're willing to give. Thanks so much. Without further ado, here is Bill Brennan. So open the valves, fasten your seatbelts, and here we go. Well, Bill, thanks so much for coming on to the Water Values Podcast. Really appreciate you taking some of your time out of your day for this. Uh, for starters, could you tell us a little about your background and how you got interested in water? Sure. It's, uh, it wasn't a straightforward path into the water business, but it was one of those things where directionally after uh, my time in the Air Force, and then a few years at, at General Electric, I looked around the landscape and said I didn't want to be in the airspace industry anymore. And I uh, happened to come upon Lee Thomas and Andy Young, and they had just transitioned out of the government into a firm called Law Engineering Law Companies Group out of Atlanta, Georgia, and ended up working for them as my first environmental job, which put me in a deep dive into the water industry, both on the uh, – wastewater side and on the drinking water side. Got it. So uh, uh, how, now, how did you uh, use that experience to springboard into your current current position? And can you tell us what you're, what you're currently doing? Sure. 
Correct. Well, it was a long and windy road with regards to different iterations in the water business from law, went on to Coopers and Lybrand on the environmental services practice side and was a consulting, uh, consulting into the environmental business, specifically around water utilities uh, back in the early 90s, which led to another career jump into um, the investment side, where I was an analyst covering the water business, the environmental business, the waste business, and environmental technologies, which were crossovers between both the waste and the water business at the time in the mid to late 90s. And then from there, over the last uh, 17 years, I've managed various investment products, both hedge funds, water rights, um, project finance, and in my present capacity, working with a number of family office institutions, uh, foundations, as far as a strategy for water with a sustainability and impact wrapper around it, where people are interested to make the investment in water, but they're looking for market-type returns in the industry, and they may be you know, unfamiliar with you know, some of the nuances of the water sector, and so I'm working with them as far as creating a clear path to you know, some type of sustained water investment program with them. So I'm working with a number of different funds, too, that are about to launch both as a venture capital fund, also as a sustainable model uh, called Arena Holdings, where uh, we'll be investing in companies with a sustainability and impact bent, but it'll be a company, not a fund and, you know, turn that model on its head because most investors now don't want to pay that 2 and 20 or one and a half and 15. They're looking to make a direct investment and a direct investment in a company that is in a holding company configuration with a focus on sustainable companies in water reuse, in, say, waste reuse around leather, tires, things like that. So it's broadened the scope from just water to everything that has a measurable impact and assets that are really focused on that that reuse and making the most of the natural resource uh, as an asset going forward. Well, you know that's really interesting because I've I've read um, a lot about the the interest in green bonds and how that demand is increasing, um, in, you know, exponentially year over year. And uh, so, I, I, what's your take on this? Obviously, it sounds like it's it's the sustainability investing for on the kind of the non-green bond side, but, but kind of in the private equity side is really booming. Is that, what's your take on all that? Well, it, it, you know, it's funny. I had the, the opportunity to speak at the Equilibrium Capital Conference in San Francisco last week, specifically on water. And my co-panelist was George Hawkins, the CEO of DC Water. And if anyone successfully has executed that green bond for green infrastructure program, it's definitely George and the folks at DC Water. And you know, I, I see a proliferation of green bonds starting to take place, but I think that will eventually morph into water-specific opportunities. And the green bonds that are now being used for either partial or all water investments will eventually become more acclimated towards blue bonds. And those blue bonds could be used for, you know, opportunities like a Watership Blue, or, you know, a, a company that's been formed by the former CEO of Abu Dhabi Shipping, um, and a few other water experts, Mark Lambert and myself, where we're taking a look and realizing that each ship could have its own dedicated blue bond specifically around uh, the, the delivery of potable water to land-based infrastructure from over-the-horizon ships. Oh, wow. That's, that's, that's something uh, outside the box. 
could you could you tell us a little about what you see, uh, not necessarily on the sustainability side, but just uh, from from just a current uh, market investment in in water, uh, either whether it be infrastructure or what have you. What what what's the current state of the market in your in your eyes? Well, you know, there's this whole renewed interest around water once again. And and the thing is, I've seen this happen before over the years. Back in 2005, 2007 time period, you saw a real concerted interest among institutional investors around this type of investment. And unfortunately, it failed to deliver primarily just on the fact that, uh, you know, the water market at that time was not as maybe mature and ready for the type of next stage investing. And when I say that, you know, you take a look at the number of different opportunities that exist out there to invest in water, some of them around the equity space. But a lot of those industrials have morphed into, you know, much more than just water. They're more like more fluid mechanics type of opportunities. And the utilities still represent, you know, an absolute pure play to invest in water and own water. That being said, you know, these next iteration of investment opportunities, I think the market for distributed water projects is just about to hit, and maybe not so much in the P3 configuration of, as we define it as far as public-private partnerships, but more along the lines as far as private-to-private, where companies are taking the initiative without the regulatory hammer hanging over their head and saying, you know what, let's take a look at this from a cost-saving standpoint, and what can we do in order to improve our water footprint and take it down to maybe you know, a neutral water footprint through water reuse and using specific types of uh, configurations. Is, you know, sustainable water comes to one as an example where their water hub creates a significant reduction in potable water usage and wastewater discharge once fully operational. And if people are interested in something like that, they can take a look at the, at the, the project that they completed down at Emory several years ago and has now been running for two years. You know, that is really the next gen as far as water investments from where I sit, and the opportunity clearly lies for, you know, the, the family offices, folks that are looking to say, no, I'd, I'd like exposure, I want to get into the water space, I'd like to do direct investments rather than have that market risk exposure, how can I do it? And companies like Sustainable Water are clearly, you know, I think, as I like to say, they've cracked the code to the next generation of water investment opportunities. Yeah, and and so I, you, you you said a lot in there, and I'd like to break some of it down, and I want to get into P three for sure. But uh, uh, let's go back to the two, you said two thousand five two thousand seven time frame, uh, and you you saw things kind of fizzle out, uh, and, and it was just the market wasn't mature. I mean, what I, I just would like to to delve into that a little more. What what kind of sure. yeah? So go ahead and. and people looked at that time frame and they said, water's the next oil, it's blue gold, all of this different nomenclature that was used to describe what is a great opportunity longer term, but that people were taking a look at a short-term return and saying, wow, we're going to get the same type of returns in water that we do in other resources. And unfortunately, water's not a traded commodity. So from that standpoint, uh, it's a lot different in comparison to its brethren's across the commodity space. And from from what happened post-2008 and the financial meltdown, you know, people that had traded into 
water stocks and even the utilities. Everything went down because people started to buy these more on a regular basis. It became more institutionalized with regards to the holding base. And when that sell-off came, everything went down. And it kind of put you know, this kind of negative spin because there were a number of people out in the marketplace saying that water is a, will dislocate from, from a risk standpoint to the rest of the market. It's always needed. It's always necessary. Pricing continues to march forward. But in reality, a public company is a public company. And when you have that type of market correction and market downturn and everyone's a seller, there's no way to get out in front of that and say, well, this is a different business model. Everything gets sold at once. So that took a lot of uh, – it took the bloom off the rose per se. And then you had the next step with regards to water rights that were moving up in the western United States as far as for development purposes and that there was a break in the market there where those prices precipitously dropped post-market market crash of 2008. And there were people that were able to come in and buy them you know, at a significant discount from developers. That kind of set the stage for, okay, this slow march back and, you know, what's the recovery in the, mar in the water business? And you saw a lot of industrials transform themselves at that point, said we need to diversify. We need to get into other areas that will kind of, you know, soften that, that market blow. Let's move into oil and gas. Let's move into other industrials. And now the downturn that you saw in the 15 time period with regards to the oil and gas business and a lot of those industrials that had been more water-oriented, per se, and had broadened their fluid mechanics offerings and now had significant exposure to the oil business, that was the second hit on, on a number of those companies. So uh, you know, they, they saw an opportunity to diversify, but diversify into a market that they thought was going to be more stable than water. But actually, when you run the numbers as far as volatility between oil and water, water is a much more stable investment than the oil market is relative to pricing. And you have to have a long-term approach to investing in the water business, whether it's at the project level, whether it's at the equity level, whether even it's at the green bond level, that you know, this, the opportunities will appreciate over time, and you should be able to get outsized returns of what, over, over what the market gives you. But the short-term exposure to volatility when you get these downturns, the water market is not immune. Right, right. And is, is that is that why uh, we're seeing a lot of, of kind of uh, private equity on the water side is that because they're in it, you know, they're able to, to have a longer term um, uh, investment horizon than, say, a public company? Yeah, and you're, you're seeing more of that, Dave. But it, the thing is, too, that I think there may be some unrealistic real expectations as far as returns are concerned for the water business. I mean, typically, if you you know, I look at the business and say, on the municipal side, somewhere between seven to ten, and if you can get upwards of those high single-digit returns, you're a hero. And the reality is, is that you're not going to get the same return profile in water that you would get in other areas of the renewable business, say, with anaerobic digestion or what you've seen with regards to the solar and some of the renewable energy side. It's just not there. So, you know, you've got the increase in you know, municipal water and wastewater as a backdrop to that, which makes it a different type of, you know, whether you want to call it real assets, renewable, whatever category it, water seems to fall into at whatever specific time investors are looking at it and how they want to couch it. 
you still have that specific exposure to the underlying increasing costs that are behind that. And so your rate of return relative to other areas of the renewable space, even though the cost of capital comes down, you know, if you can get private investments on the project side and they fall into the 10 to 12 range, that is going to be the norm, I believe, for the foreseeable future. Got it, got it. But most people in this type of market, if you told them that we can get that type of return year after year, they would say, great, for the longer-term investors. Those that are trying to catch a wave, well, you know what? The water business, that wave came and went. Reality has sunk in, and you take a look and say, how is the business maturing, and what's the next iteration of opportunities that are coming? Those opportunities are going to come in the form of security, sensors, asset management, um, it's distributed projects, you know, that's going to be the next wave and acceleration of the, and the transformation of the water business that we've had to this point and what the water business looks like moving forward. Yeah. So, so you just kind of ticked off some OEMs and things like that. I mean, we're, are, are there differences among the market segments? I mean, are we talking uh, uh, like the technology, like the sensors, and then you have pipes and then you have service providers, uh, what are the different What are the different segments that you see out there that uh, that well, merit, merit consideration? Well, I think if people want to take a look at wastewater, stormwater, green infrastructure is a great area in those areas where you're going to implement water reuse or a comprehensive approach using various technologies and systematic processes in order to manage that wastewater where it doesn't go full flush into a sewer and you're able to recharge it at the point of source. And I think those types of opportunities, especially in urban areas, people are looking at and saying that we have to do something the way that the configuration of these cities has taken place in your continued urban sprawl. It's, it's a must and we have to do it. So that's an emerging sector, section on the stormwater side that I think you know, people should pay attention to. As far as reuse, and the, the reduction in use of water and the reduction in use of discharge, I think that's another area where something simplistic as far as the hydro, combination of hydroponics and a small wastewater footprint at the, at the actual point of source before discharge where it can be reused for other things as far as toilets, labs, lawns, irrigation, things of that nature, that's a natural as well. So, you know, those types of opportunities are clearly there and they're there today. I think you're going to see, you know, cities take a look at the, you know, their configuration and the state of their assets and infrastructure and say, you know, we don't have the capital to invest in new pipes through miles of Philadelphia or Baltimore or even Washington, D.C. What can we do and how can we be creative with the private sector, leverage that capital and expertise and move forward as far as, now, someone comes in and has a prepackaged project that says, we'll take over all your pipes. We can build it into the disk format, you know, one of the, the pricing mechanisms we have in the Pennsylvania market, and it becomes a surcharge. People, will, they won't balk at that because if they take a look at their cable and, and cell phone bill and see all the various taxes and surcharges that they pay on top of just the regular service pay, what you would have on the water side would be de minimis in comparison to what the underlying true value of that water really is at the residential, commercial, and industrial segment. Yeah, and you're, when you say disk, you're talking about the distribution system improvement charge. Correct. Yeah, so so uh, for, for listeners, that is just um, – uh, 
a kind of a, a surcharge on top of the base rates established in a rate case where they come in and say, we, we have all these distribution system improvements. And if we make this investment, we'll get uh, a return of and return on that investment. Fair enough? Correct. And, yeah. and that, that's fair. And, and anybody that's interested in that, they can take a look at the Aqua America model and how they successfully implemented that and, and you know, successfully carried out that program in the state of Pennsylvania. Yeah, and I th- think those uh, DSIC programs are taken off around the country. Uh, I think, in, in, yeah, in Indiana, we've had it for a long time. And it, they even hopped over to the electric, to the energy side, where there's now a, a, like a, a DSIC for, for the energy companies. Um, so w- when you're looking for uh, investments in the water sector, what, what kind of, wh- when you are out there looking at things, what, what kind of catches your eye? The thing that I see a big quantum leap forward is that on the distributed model, if somebody had asked me three years ago, Bill, what, what's going on in the world of project finance with regards to water, I'd say not much. And people that had even successfully executed a P3 and then turned around and, and for whatever reason, two to three years later, new administration comes in and that project's pulled out from under them. I'd say that distributed model is accelerating, and I could rattle off 10 developers right off the top of my head that are out there in the market that have either previously successfully executed on projects in their previous positions before setting up development companies like Mark Lambert at Watermark, the former CEO of IDE. Um, Jonathan Lanciani at Sustainable Water is another example coming out of Betts Chemical and, and taking, you know, literally a very pragmatic approach and working through the process to create the water hub, which is now starting to catch, you know, a real accelerating movement at the university and corporate campus level. So there's a number of these success stories that haven't hit the market yet, but will, and I will definitely catch the eye of not only you know, the larger industrial groups that say, you know, if we've looked before at how to leverage our balance sheet, maybe there's a way that we can move forward at various stages of that development, either at the developer level, at the development level of the project, and post when everything's tied up as far as the actual underwriting of the project itself. So you could possibly have three bites of the apple with regards to what's taking place in this distributed model. But again, it's going to come down to the developer first and their ability to execute and, you know, what's their real knowledge within the water business because to understand the technology and implementation is one thing, to walk through the the regulatory schema and kind of navigate that, especially for the P3 side of the house. And, you know, my credit goes off to people in the EPA right now with regards to looking at this realistically and saying how can we drive and how can we put together a clearer path so P3s can be executed um, because there still is this massive disconnect between the feds, the state, and the local levels as far as getting everybody on the same regulatory playbook and also who ultimately takes responsibility at the various stages of these projects. You know, there, we've made progress there, but not to the point where there's going to be a proliferation of P3 opportunities in the U.S., at least not in the immediate future. So I would say the private-to-private market really presents a unique opportunity. And, again, you know, you've had people like XPV that have successfully executed as far as venture and growth capital in the market, uh, and they're just starting to take a look at how they exit these 
uh, investments that they've made, I think you're going to get a whole nother round of early stage investors into the water market and take a look at it from the standpoint of technologies that may have been developed for the aerospace industry and how are they applicable to water and how can they solve issues that have yet to be solved or those types of technology transfer opportunities into the space are starting to take place. So, you know, I, I'm a lot more confident now as far as, you know, how the water business is starting to move forward and adopt technologies than I've been at any other time. And I think that, you know, the data play with regards to you know, asset management, um, remote monitoring and remote operations, not only of wastewater, um, but some of these other things that I've talked about earlier in our conversation, they're clearly going to be that next wave of opportunities for investors. Terrific. Now, uh, we've talked, uh, you, uh, you know, around pulp, around, excuse me, around P3 for a little bit here. So let's, let's talk about P3 and what, you know, what, what does that mean to the investor when, when you have the private party, what, when they hear P3 or what do they, what are they thinking? Well, it, it, to the investor, I mean, they're taking a look at what a market rate of return is versus the risk that they undertake here. And I think, you know, the P3 side of the equation gets held up right now, really at the at the uh, the governmental level. It, not so much at the investor level. There's an appetite and there's enough capital on the sidelines that are continuing to move forward um, with WIPA and, and what they're trying to do as far as accelerate their component at the federal level through the EPA Water Division, you know, they're to be commended on that. But ultimately, you know, the public-private partnership, you still have to go through this educational explanation as far as why this is in the best interest of the end user, both from a pricing standpoint, quality standpoint, safety standpoint. And, you know, I, I, I've seen religiously time after time when the P3 model has been implemented overseas, and there's been a retention of ownership by the governments, and these are, you know, the, the larger water utilities. Um, the quality of the water has gone up. The delivery of the water with regards to um, customer uh, having the access to it, that's massively increased. So, you know, I, I'm a big proponent of privatization of, of water in the sense that, you know, there is a fair value for water, and people are paying for the conveyance. They're paying for the treatment of this. And if they want things to be on par and accelerate from a safety standpoint and also a quality of the water and delivery standpoint, I, I think that public-private model, the private capital ownership, instills discipline at the public level. And again, you know, you take a look at what's happened in Flint, in Flint Michigan, and that situation there. Uh, if, from where I sit, if we had private investors there. I don't think that the things would have been allowed to continue down the path that they did, which ultimately led to the situation where, you know, you, you put lives at risk. And so these stop gaps, private capital, capital also provide another layer of eyes and ears. I mean, typical to Sarbanes-Oxley, and people can complain about that. But the more I take a look and say, if you've got people that are looking at this and their investment is there, they're paying attention to this, and they want to make sure that it's done right because risk and reputation are on the line as well. And no one, especially when water ultimately is, it's the perfect sustainable, but it's also the, the perfect public company. You're providing safety to people, and people may not look at it in that context, but ultimately that's what it is from a drinking water perspective. And if I ran a water utility, I'd wake up every day, and the first thing on my mind would be, is my water safe? 
And so that private investor on the P3 side of it has that same type of mentality, but it's it's really accelerated, too, in the sense that they want to make sure that at every component, every piece of the operation, they're getting it right. And I think you'll see this again. That's why you know I think the first step here will be the private to privates and then best methods and, and best best technologies from that segment of the market will start to be deployed into the P3 market. When I, when I see the P3s out there, most of the ones at least I hear about are very large utilities. Um, and I, I am kind of curious about, um, you know, because some of these P3s are what I would call a black box. You have an agreement that says, hey, the, the P3 partner is going to get paid a certain fee. Uh, and, you know, they're similar, similar to the Bayonne KKR situation that you had with regards to um, and when they signed that concession agreement in, in Bayonne, New Jersey. And that, that's correct. But everybody thought that that would be the predecessor to an acceleration of that marketplace, and it didn't happen that way. So you know, it, the, the reality is, is that um, there's a number of different P3 opportunities that have taken place, but the fear is, is that at some point in time, you know, the politics will take over and people will take a look and say, am I overpaying relative to what I paid in the past? And should we start to, you know, maybe take a look at taking that asset back? And we've seen that happen time, you know, in certain instances uh, out in California. I'm trying to think of the, the exact location, but I know that the folks at Perk Water were involved in what was, you know, perfectly executed P3 MBR situation up above Los Angeles, and then three years after that P3 uh, had been, you know, successfully executed, politicians floated a bond to buy it back, and the big argument was that, you know, the price of water, take a look at how much it went up, but people were paying really for the fair value of that water, and now I would take a look at what's the disposition of, disposition of that asset. And again, private capital will make sure that that asset is maintained at a peak position because when they go back to a public utility commission, now, as far as the rate basis is concerned, they want to make sure those lines, and again, there's another barrier here, not and a protective barrier, I should add, as far as that P, the PUC being there as a the last line of defense for the consumer uh, with regards to you know, what's really in the rate base here. And you know they have to show and produce. I just think that the P3 model um, will lead to a better construct of the asset than what we see as far as municipalities and what they've done historically, leaving, you know, deferring maintenance to a point where consent decrees come down and the asset becomes a point, to a point where, you know, ultimately the sale has to take place because they don't have the capital or the customer base in order to implement the improvements. Yeah, and and when it comes to P3s, one of the things I always say, you got to have the right, the, you know, the the agreement uh, correctly done up in the first place so you have the incentives lined up properly. And then I think you also have to have uh, quality oversight. The, what, what To me, what's important in addition to getting it right from the get-go is that the municipality or the government entity cannot just kind of say, well, we signed this agreement, let's wash our hands and be done with it. Um, 
because I think there, it's it, you got to you got to look at that third word in there. It's partnership and and the. You, you hit it right on the head, Dave. The aligned interest has to be there. And the projects typically are only as good as the contracts themselves. And so, you know, you've got to get it right on that first turnaround and got to take a look at parties across the table from each other and say we truly are in a partnership going forward. And this is being done ultimately for our, our mutual benefit, but ultimately the customer's benefit as well. Exactly, exactly. The government needs to look out for its constituents. Um, and, and as I indicated earlier, we see a lot of the big P3s, you know, the big utility P3s. What about opportunities for small utilities uh, to, to enter into to P3 arrangements? I think, you know, depending on what the regulatory climate is in, the, in those respective jurisdictions, I think that there's a great opportunity for that. And I think that private capital will take a look and say, you know, as long as the customer base is there. And you say, you know, it, it's funny you say the smaller utilities, when you take a look at the size of the utilities, people have to realize that most of the utilities in the United States are small utilities, that the, the majority serve under 3,000 customers or less. And so from a project standpoint, I think it presents an opportunity if somebody has the foresight to come, on, come in and package these deals, um, not as just a one-off project, but more along the lines as far as bundling these together and trying to find, you know, from a credit standpoint, what matches up. And, but this leads to a problem, too, of the haves and have-nots in that the places that need the P3s the most, unfortunately, are in areas where it may not be the best economic conditions, and therefore the investment community tends to take a look and say, well, it really doesn't match our investment returns. So something has to be done there as far as a mechanism in place that you know, it, it, there's got to be some concession and, and some type of um, mechanism in place that where the places need it the most, that that rate of return for the private capital that comes in, they can get what would be an expected rate of return, but also you know, work to minimize the risk that may be inherent to that smaller system. Yeah, and I and you know, in terms of, of of the the private capital coming in and investing in those smaller systems, they really need a model that's going to be replicable across a number of different projects, so that so that they can uh, optimize their investment. You know, and, and getting the model right. It seems like I don't know what you're do. You, Correct. Yeah. Okay. No, I I totally agree with that. And replication standardization is key for this because investors want to see a model where this can be t- done time and time again. They don't want to invest in a one-off situation. Yeah, and, and so when we kind of look at this in a, in, a, in a bigger picture, I mean, is there kind of an investment threshold that you think needs to be hit in order for, for P3 to make sense, or, or is it just private capital will look at anything? I think private capital will take a look at, at, at anything and, and everything, but it really comes down to the mandate of what that particular private capital is. And, you know, in the form of a private equity situation, you know, you're, you're taking out a much higher return than you would in project finance. And as I said, you know, people that are looking to invest in this, in that P3 model, you're taking a look at anywhere, I would say somewhere between you know, 7 and 12% is the range of the, uh, of the return. Got it. So, well, Bill, you've been absolutely fantastic sharing a lot of your knowledge about the investment community with us today. Uh, for those folks who want to find out more about you, uh, where can they go to find that information? Uh, sure. You can take a look at, uh, if you look up Griffin Ventures, you, you'll, you'll see our website pop up and you can always link in with me 
um, under William Brennan and, and Griffin Ventures LLC. And uh, you know, happy to if anybody wants to have a further discussion about this and share some thoughts. You know, I'm open, and we can you know either do it through you, Dave, or directly to me through LinkedIn. You bet. All right. Well, thanks so much, Bill. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Dave. You bet. All right. Bye. Well, I hope you enjoyed that interview with Bill Brennan. Uh, he was fantastic. Obviously, he provided a great deal of information. We covered a lot of ground in that episode. That's one of those episodes where I think I could listen to it uh, a couple of times and take something new away each time I listen to it. Uh, in any event, uh, really appreciate Bill's time. He was fantastic. Obviously, very knowledgeable, uh, especially given the amount of ground that we covered. Well, you can check out the show notes for this session at thewatervalues.com forward slash pod 105. You can leave me uh, or you can ask Bill a question. You know, he, he, he obviously said uh, connect with him on LinkedIn or you could go through me if you want to get in touch with Bill about uh, any issues you're having in the water investing space. Uh, you can email me at david at thewatervalues.com. You can tweet at me at DTM1993. You can tweet about the podcast using the hashtag watervalues. Uh, and again, please leave a rating and a review on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, again, whatever podcast directory you're on. We greatly appreciate it. Uh, you can also sign up for the Water Values newsletter, which is growing by leaps and bounds, by the way. Uh, thank you very much for all of you who signed up. It's a, uh, it, it's, you know, we, we don't send, we send uh, essentially a newsletter out every time a podcast is released. So about twice a month. You know, it's not going to pile up in your inbox and, and cause your inbox to get clogged. So go ahead and sign up for the Water Values newsletter at thewatervalues.com. It's real easy. In closing, please remember to keep the core message of the Water Values podcast in mind as you go about your daily business. Water is our most valuable resource. So please join me by going out into the world and acting like it. Listening to the Water Values Podcast. Thank you for spending some of your day with my dad and me. Thank you for tuning in to the disclaimer. I'm a lawyer licensed in Indiana and Colorado, and this podcast does not establish an attorney-client relationship with you or anyone else. Information in this podcast should not be considered legal advice. Further, this podcast is not a solicitation for professional employment. I'm just a lawyer who finds water issues interesting and who believes greater public education about water issues is necessary. And that includes enhancing my own education about water issues because no one knows everything about water. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next time.